0: Hello and greetings. Welcome to another edition of the New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. I'm Ethan, very glad that you've joined us, thankful that you've given us the gift of spending time together as we continue to explore what God has made known about Christ through the Hebrews author. We continue in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we have been exploring the uh, letter to the Hebrews, we've been able to do a fairly Decent job of being able to understand what each section is doing in the overall rhetorical purpose of what the Hebrews author is saying. The first few verses in chapter one, for, or the exordium, kind of introducing it all and laying out what was to be discussed. The rest of chapter one began the, sustain, began the sustained argument, looking at how Jesus is God. Uh, chapter two, one through four, was an exhortation about not neglecting this great message of salvation that we have received. Then the rest of chapter two continues that sustained argument with Jesus now as fully human, looking at Psalm eight and why it is so important for uh, to understand that Jesus had to become like humanity in every way in order to redeem humanity. Then in chapters three and four, we saw uh, the beginning of that exhortation there about the household and looking deeply into Psalm 95 this time. Uh, And why it was important to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, not prove rebellious like that wilderness generation, uh, so that we may enter into that rest. In the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 until verse 10, we saw the resumption of that sustained argument, kind of the climax of that sustained argument, that Jesus is God, Jesus is man, means that Jesus can be this ideal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But then he done that hard stop in, in chapter 5 and verse 11 that we have seen through chapter 6 and verse 12, where he now turns to his audience and he says, you, you are sluggish of hearing. Um, you guys need milk, not solid food. Solid food is for the mature. Um, and we want to press on to maturity to let aside these elementary doctrines and move on almost challenging his audience to say, hey, no, we can accept it, we can handle it, as if he wants now them for to prove him wrong and therefore pay all the more attention to what he'll have to say about this priesthood. And then he has this very dire warning that Christians like them, those who have been Christians a while, have tasted the goodness, have experienced some of the power, have been enlightened, if they turn away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. It's a very uh, dire warning. But then he had come back in verses 9 through 12, and he had tried to reassure his audience, well, we, we, we're confident in much greater things about you regarding salvation. God's not uh, unjust to overlook all that you've done. But then we got that final exhortation, that we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and inherit, patience inherit the promises. So he says we are completely confident of your salvation now. The question is going to be what's going to happen in the future because he's concerned they're growing weary. He's concerned that they're fading away. So then we have six, 6 thirteen through 20 sitting here. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1 and continuing very clearly uh, the argument regarding Melchizedek and the high priesthood and then Jesus and how he fulfills that priesthood in chapters 8 and 9. Uh, but verses 13 through 20 are kind of sit right in the middle because it's really emphasizing this idea of an oath and the swearing, uh, which is going to prove very important for us in chapter 7. Uh, so there's certainly a lot of stuff here going on that involves the main argument. And yet we can see that it's still got this exhortative function here uh, that we can see in verses 18 and 19 especially. And so we're going to look at it as a very complicated bridge, a transitional uh, message getting us back into the main narrative, but providing some details that's going to help us in uh, that main narrative that we're going to see in chapter 7, 8, 9, and into 10. And uh, the Hebrews authors probably built this out for that reason. But it's precipitated by that final statement there in verse 12, Uh, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Uh, If you are acquainted with the Hebrew Scriptures, you are thinking about the exemplar of one who through faith and patience inherited a promise, you immediately start thinking of Abraham. And so, the Hebrew's author is going to begin with Abraham, and he does another good close textual reading. And he's looking here at Genesis 22 and in verse 17, and he's noticing that as Abraham has made the ultimate demonstration of his faith and obedience, in proving willing to offer Isaac upon the altar, God declares, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Um, In Hebrew, you've got that construct where you have an infinitive absolute form of the verb and then a, a regular form of the verb. Uh, put together to show some kind of emphasis. And the Hebrews author has seen in that kind of this uh, swearing measure, an oath measure, making this promise. And he really draws out a lot about that idea of swearing. And it's important for us to talk a minute about swearing because, as you're aware, swearing today... Uh, generally doesn't have the same connotation as it does then and ours is a much more impoverished view it's much more flippant much more casual because when you think of swearing generally the first thing that comes to mind are the four-letter words the curse words Uh, but even in some of the curse words we think about uh, God uh, uh, deing something to hell uh, the idea there um, that that is this invocation of an oath a swearing of demanding that God condemn something uh, and that kind of gets us back to what swearing was understood primarily as in a more ancient context and so we look at what swearing really is swearing is exactly what the Hebrews author says it is in verse 16 that when you swear an oath you're confirming something it is final for that um, confirmation that by invoking the name of a superior and that's very important that you you swear by something greater than yourself you you invoke a superior in the name of the king or in the name of god i say this is true and we still have a vestige of that and the vestige of that we see especially uh in our criminal system or even civil system in the courts and also when it comes to uh testifying before the government so normally you will have people sworn in especially in a court case you're sworn in that you will you swear to tell the truth uh the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help you god again invoking the deity generally hand on a bible or some kind of religious document in order to provide solemnity to the occasion and to be aware that now whatever you say comes with penalties and consequences. This is something we can see more when it comes to Congress. If somebody is called upon to explain things to Congress, there's two ways you can do that depending on the circumstance. Sometimes uh, your deposition is sworn in, sometimes you just give it. Uh, And a lot of people want to resist the swearing in, because the minute that you swear in, you can't spin your yarns anymore. Everything you say is on the record as sworn testimony. And if at any time any evidence arises that suggests that you were not being as completely accurate in your statements before Congress, you can be put in jail for uh, perjuring yourself before Congress. That's why perjury is such a major issue. When you are sworn in um, to give testimony at trial, if later evidence... will show that what you're saying is not accurate. It's not just oops, uh, you know, the, the jury now thinks that the other side has a better argument. Now you may be brought on trial because you have committed perjury and you may suffer the consequences. So there's a lot going on there. And... And that, that gets kind of the, the controversies that come around these days about should Christians swear oaths. You look back in Matthew 5, also in James 4, James 5, Jesus and James both have this emphasis that your yes should be yes and your no should be no. That you should not swear oaths at all. And there's much to commend that attitude that what the idea is not that you should never swear an oath. We, you know. When we make a marriage vow, we don't just walk up to the woman or the man and say yes before somebody. Um, When we stand before a court, we need to be sworn in. The idea is that there would never be a time where uh, swearing an oath is inappropriate. It is the realization that we should live our lives that no one needs to demand it in regular conversation, that uh, we are known for being faithful to our word. And our yes, therefore, means yes, and our no, therefore, means no. And there's no question uh, or issue about that whatsoever. And that's, of course, the point that the Hebrews author is trying to make about God. That God, when he wanted to testify to Abraham, there's no greater person that he could swear by. And therefore, he swore by himself that he would do these things. And he therefore guaranteed his character with this oath, that this is exactly what was going to happen. Uh, And the other confident thing that he could have about it is that it's impossible for God to lie. And so, with Abraham, his audience is going to be primed to understand whatever the audience is, whether fully Jewish Christian or Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, to understand how God was faithful to that promise. He's kind of evoking the whole theme in the Psalms of God is loyal to covenant. God has displayed chesed, covenant loyalty, meaning steadfast love to his people, which is the the sure confidence that God's people have that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Um, This is the first time that we're going to start looking at some of the things the Hebrews author says and to make a nuance between an absolute interpretation and a rhetorical understanding. And we get this idea here, you've, you've heard probably, well, it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6.18, qu- quoted in a decontextualized way to make the general proposition that it is impossible for God to lie. But then we can read passages like in 1 Kings 22, where you've got uh, 1 Kings 20 with um, Micaiah, the son of Imla, who sees this vision, right? And in this vision... He is taken to the heavenly scene where God asks his counsel, uh, who will induce Ahab to go up to Ramoth Gilead? And we find out that it is uh, deceitful spirits who come up and says that they will induce the prophets to lie, induce the prophets to say that he will go up and it will fall to him, that he may go up and do it. Uh, And so those spirits go into the prophets and, of course, uh, have listens to those prophets and goes up in battle um, And this is a thorny issue for a lot of reasons but it's not even just there. Uh, in Ezekiel many of the, the prophets you have that message that you know if a prophet goes out and says something uh, and it and it is a deceptive message I Yahweh have deceived that prophet. And that kind of sits uneasily here with this idea that it is impossible for God to lie because we assume that it is impossible for God to lie equals that there's never any kind of deceptiveness being used in the way God accomplishes his purposes. And when we look at the Old Testament, that's just a a fundamentally not true situation. But we're going to have that later on. Uh, In chapter 7, we're going to see that the Hebrews author is going to try to say that it's self-evident that the one who uh, is blessed is inferior to the one who blesses. Uh, and yet, uh, there are many times in Scripture where, in fact, an inferior does bless a superior. In fact, this very narrative he's going to talk about in chapter 7 uh, with Melchizedek, because Melchizedek, after bl- with blessing Abraham, is going to turn around and bless God. Um, so we see it's a rhetorical posture. If we take it absolutely strictly, uh, we're going to inc- introduce contradiction. Because here's the thing, why does God want Ahab to go up to die at Ramoth Gilead? Because it will fulfill the word he spoke through his prophet Elijah. So God is being faithful to his purposes when he has all of that go down. And so that's the form of the rhetoric here being used. God is faithful to his purposes. And that's the powerful message he's trying to get the audience to understand. God is faithful to his promises. Therefore, we've got that. the end of this. That we who have fled for refuge might have encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Uh, the idea of refuge, very important as a, in the Psalms that uh, God is a place of refuge, um, a source of refreshment for those who seek him. It's something we don't see as much in the New Testament, but certainly there as an important theme that we flee to find safety and strength in God, and that the idea there to hold fast to the hope set before us. Uh, The encouragement there is God is faithful to his promises. So, if God has sworn something by an oath, it is going to happen. And that gets us to what is that hope set before us, which is a dizzying combination of metaphors. That it is a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner, being the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. An anchor is anything that holds firm, but generally when we think of anchor, we think of an anchor on a boat or a ship, the large piece of metal that is thrown over to uh, fall all the way down to the ocean bed or the seabed and will keep the boat from moving with the waves. Um, It's a very nautical imagery that's now being used to to describe the idea of entering an inner place behind a curtain. And of course, if you are attuned to what's going on, if you are Jewish background or you are well-versed in Hebrew scriptures, the minute you start hearing the inner place behind the curtain, you start thinking of the most holy place. Uh, But Jesus has gone in there, and the one place Jesus never went was the most holy place of the temple. Yes, when he dies on the cross, it is reported that the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two. And that happened in the temple in Jerusalem as a embodied demonstration of what just happened that the uh, means of atonement had shifted that the means of access had shifted because of what was going on and what god was accomplishing in jesus but jesus himself never entered that now, later on in chapter 9, we're going to see that the Hebrews author, in painstaking detail, is going to demonstrate that all of the various aspects of the temple in Jerusalem was an earthly copy of the heavenly realities. And he's going to make much of Jesus entering in the most holy place in heaven. And that is where he can enter. And Jesus is gone as a forerunner, the prodromos, uh, the one who comes in advance. The one sent to take observations, the spy, the scout, the the kind of like the pioneer of chapter 2, blazing the trail. Here he's the one who's gone ahead of all of us. And he has gone there because he's been made this high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, this does provide that hook. Uh, that's going to bring us back into that argument which shows the rhetorical mastery this is exactly what he said in chapter 5 and verse 10 and also in his own way in chapter 2 and in verse 17 where he's constantly you know he's he's anticipating this understanding but we also need to recognize that the hebrews author is doing something a little bit more profound here And why were we talking about oaths and promises he's going to make much of and we can already see this um the lord yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever so what he's done from the beginning actually is he's noticed in psalm 110 a, a detail that we might pass over very quickly in reading it and that is that yahweh has sworn this is something we don't see him doing a lot we saw it in genesis 22 by the the way of speaking blessing i will bless you and multiplying i will multiply you but here We've got it again, but explicitly he has sworn and he will not change his mind. And so what the Hebrews are pointing out is God can't swear by anybody higher. God swears by himself to really show you that this is serious. He is definitely going to do this. And the, this that he is definitely doing here is that he is appointing the Messiah to be this priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to show what this means in chapter 7, 8, 9, but he's already established why he's doing this. And it's an important thing to establish because the whole letter, it seems, has been leading to this. The whole message Uh, And this is something, again, that we are suggesting is very likely new. It's an emphasis we don't have in uh, Jesus, in Paul, in Peter, uh, even though Psalm 110 was used by all of them as a messianic theme. This is something the Hebrews author is pulling out. And he's not pulling it out of thin air. It's there in the text. It's there in what is said. Uh, But it's there to provide this confidence and this assurance that God is doing it this way, and it's a means by which we can gain strength to endure what we must endure so that we don't grow weary because Jesus has entered into the most holy place in heaven. It also helps to explain so powerfully. We understand from uh, what the Hebrews author has already said in the Gospels why his life was so important. We understand from the Hebrews author why his death is so important. The resurrection is kind of taken for granted by the Hebrews author, but from Paul we understand why it's important. But why did he need to ascend? Yes, this Danielic son of man has to enter into the presence of the Ancient of Days to receive a dominion and a kingdom in Daniel 7, and that's certainly behind the scenes. But for the Hebrews author, it is, that's where Jesus can minister as this high priest and make intercession for his people. And we're going to explore that much more fully as we continue in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And uh, we do that Lord willing, and may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again. <laughs>